Placed inside the Ark of Covenant Mercy was the golden jar with mystery manna inside. Aaron's resurrection rod, which had sprouted, and the stone tablets engraved with the covenant laws. On top of the lid of the ark were two cherubim, angels of splendor, with outstretched wings overshadowing the throne of mercy. But now is not to discuss, is not the time to discuss further the significant details of these things. <clears throat> I want to point out a couple things, so even though Paul didn't want to. Um, okay, so the mystery manna represented Jesus Christ. The covenant mercy. Uh, Ark of Covenant Mercy represent Jesus Christ. I like how he called it resurrection rod represented Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? Like all of these things represent him. The cherubim, one of the main jobs of the cherubim was to guard the presence of God. They went wherever he went and they overshadowed the mercy seat. Well, uh, wasn't it in maybe John where it brought out that where the Lord had laid, there was an angel on sitting on one side and an angel sitting on the other side. In one of the accounts, I believe, and they asked, you know, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus Christ. And they are like, well, obviously he's not here. But that, <clears throat> that was a fulfillment of the two cherubim overshadowing and facing each other in the Ark of the Covenant. So every single thing was very well thought out. And, and I, planned. And I thought that was uh, the rod which had sprouted, which means it's ever living. Eternal. Eternal. And it was also almond. And almonds represent the resurrection. And Jeremiah saw an almond sprouting. So, yeah, the branch that will sprout. I mean, there's a lot of symbolism. So when you're studying the Old Testament, it's crucial. It's crucial to always think, how does this represent Jesus Christ? Uh, especially in the symbolism of the tabernacles and the temples and, you know, all the articles and things like that. Because, and the reason we can do that specifically with those things is because uh, Moses was patterning everything after the pattern that God gave him from heaven. So again, Paul's now connecting the Hebrews, his audience, even deeper with their history, the significance of the things they used formerly to worship, which he's already said that it's dying. You know, he already told him it's dying. It's passing away. All of those things are passing away to make room for the new. That's an important life example too. You know, it's like a lot of times when we can feel something is dying, when we can feel like we're transitioning from an old season into a new, if we're not careful, we'll try to hold on to the old. And you can never receive with clenched fists. And so you always have to let go because the new will be even better than the old. The old served its purpose to prepare you for the new. So it actually should be a time of congratulations and celebration that you went through that old season successfully and now you can leave that behind to go to the new. I think we always observe old at, you know, at times, not always, but we observe old things passing away as something to lose when actually we're entering into a new season. However, there are times where maybe you do need to grieve an old season, especially if it was something that was against your will. Maybe you didn't want a marriage to end. Maybe you didn't want that person to die. Maybe you didn't want that child to move. Whatever it is, there are times for uh, grieving. And I see that, especially to me in relationships. You do not Absolutely. want to lose some people that you become attached to, that mm -hmm. you've formed bonds with, mm -hmm. and sometimes that season's over. Yes, and sometimes we hang on way beyond the past due date. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's important to keep in mind because even today, Christians, even though we've never lived in the ministry of death, that's what it's called. The Old Covenant is called a ministry of death. And even though we've never lived in the ministry of death, there's entire movements in the body of Christ that try to take us either you know, into the ministry of death or take us back to the ministry of death. And quite frankly, there's no way I'm going to go back to the ministry of death when we have a glorious ministry uh, right now. And uh, so in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11, in the English Standard Version, I'm going to read it. It says, Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. 
which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was the glory, now get this, in the ministry of condemnation, it's fascinating that people want to live under the law of condemnation and the ministry or covenant of death. I, it, it's just baffling. I don't, I don't get it at all. So he literally calls it, there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, but the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once was glory or had glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So basically, the new covenant under Jesus Christ has more glory. Why? Because it's a ministry of righteousness. What the law could not do in imparting righteousness, it could not do that because of the fallen nature of mankind. Jesus Christ, His ministry, His covenant can because our old nature is crucified, we're resurrected, all things are new, right? So we're now a new creation. I had to correct that 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 theology uh, this week. Working with a man, struggles with bipolar. We're like throwing spaghetti at the wall, seeing what will stick. You know, sometimes that's how it is at first. When you're mentoring someone, it's like, okay, well, you know, Holy Spirit's pointing out things, but you're just kind of feeling around, seeing what he wants to do. So I told him, I said, there's specific things I want you to do. I want you to listen to the book of John. I want you to get in worship. I want you to buy, bind these specific demons. We'll know if that's what's going on. He's like, okay. Call him up. He's having a great week. All right. Well, something must have stuck. What was it? So now, you know, it's like spiritual scientist. What stuck? He said, well, listening to the book of John has been a tremendous help. Absolutely. He said, then worship music. He said, you know, there's a certain radio station that everyone's aware of that is Christian. They play the same ten songs over and over and over. He said, all of a sudden, I was able to find different worship music. He said, but also, I would just sit and I would ponder. I would sit with myself, which a lot of people, if they're struggling with emotional things, they don't want to do that. They want to stay busy. And, you know, so he's, he was learning to sit. I said, okay, well, what did you ponder? I'm thinking redemption realities, goodness of God, blah, blah. Well, just my sinful nature. <laughs> oh, the sinful nature that's been crucified? What do you mean? Well, let's go to Romans chapter 6. So then I just took up through all of the theology, and I told him, I said, until your heart is pierced with the revelation of righteousness, you will struggle. What you have faith for, you will live in. If you have faith that you're still a sinner, that you're going to sin, and that you're fighting your fallen nature, then that's how you will live. But if you can get into the place of faith in the fact that you are now righteous, you are now wisdom, you are now as Jesus Christ was on the earth, and that your old nature has been crucified, you are no longer under the dominion of sin, then your entire life will change. It is amazing that Christians will choose to believe a lie that they are still sinners based on improper instruction on Romans chapter 7. You're taking... There's an entire New Testament. And you believe Romans chapter 7, which is based on Paul's experience under what? The law. Well, we got right here. The ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. That's all that chapter 7 is about. But then he says, but I thank God. There is one who could deliver me from this body of death, and that is Jesus Christ. So that means we're delivered from the body of death. So then he had the obvious question, which we've all heard. Well, then why do I still sin? Your soul must be renewed. So then we went to James chapter 1, Margie. Then we went to Romans 12, 1 through 2, Jarena. And I just took them through the whole journey that the only thing that you need to do is renew your soul so that it comes into agreement or faith with what Jesus Christ says about you. And his brain blew up. And his brain blew up. Hello? <laughs> Hello? Is anyone still there? <laughs> I said, do you believe that? Do you believe what I just told you? He said, yes. I said, your whole life is going to change from this point on. So, I mean, I, I don't know how to make it more plainer. You know, like the Bible is so plain. 
We are now under the ministry of righteousness. We are now under the ministry of life, the law of liberty, freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So if there's not freedom in your life and if there's not freedom in your church, then guess what? The Spirit of the Lord ain't there. Another thing I told an individual I was telling you guys about, I said, I know God as a person. He is not some far-off entity. He lives in me. I also know He shows up. So his question was, who has seen God? I said, well, He lives in me, so I see Him every day. But here's the thing. I know when Holy Spirit's here. If He ain't here, I'm going home. He's the most important person in the room. One of the markers of Holy Spirit is freedom. When you leave a meeting, church service, whatever you want to call it, you should have more freedom. It shouldn't be that you went there and heard a good message and had some good music and gave your money. I felt condemned. You know, uh, people can hire a prostitute, have a good time, have some good music, and walk away. What it should be is, and give them some money. What it should be is when you walk into that place, there is a freedom. There's an impartation of the nature of Jesus Christ that awakens to what is already inside of you and all of a sudden your relationships are better and you're not managing sin. What the heck is that? You don't need to manage sin like you manage money or manage your portfolio. Sin nature is dead. You don't need to manage it. But what you do need to do is if Holy Spirit says, I don't like that. And He may not, you just feel it. You know, there's, ooh, mm, what I just said there, He didn't like. I get wiggles. Then what I need to do is say, Holy Spirit, I acknowledge you don't like that. I come into agreement with the fact you don't like that and I don't need to do that anymore. And then, bam, all unrighteousness is cleansed. The blood of Jesus covers you. You're fine. But there should be a tangible result in your life from every single meeting you go to. And a lot of that can be on the person ministering. They may be teaching you stuff that's no longer reality or maybe they're not in faith to believe that when they speak they're imparting the nature of Jesus Christ, the essence, uh, or you're not in the right mind to come in and receive an impartation. It's very important. If you go into a meeting passive, then you probably won't get much at all. So we always have to stay on top of those things. So we have a covenant that has more glory. The Holy Spirit will always trump the ministry of death. Alright, now I'm not sure why I skipped verses 6 and 7, but we better read those. So with this prescribed pattern of worship, the priests would routinely go in and out of the first chamber to perform their religious duties. And the high priest was permitted to enter the holiest sanctuary of all only once a year, and he could never enter without first offering sacrificial blood for both his own sins and the sins of the people. Verse 8. Now when the Holy Spirit uses the symbols of this pattern of worship to reveal that the perfect way of holiness had not yet been unveiled. For as long as the tabernacle stood, it was an illustrator or illustration that pointed to our present time of fulfillment, demonstrating that offerings and animal sacrifices, here it is, had failed to perfectly cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. And not only that, guys, but on the Day of Atonement, right, is when he would go in, it was just a reminder that you were still a sinner and you had one more year where the blood would cover, not take away the sins of the world, right? For this old pattern of worship was a matter of external rules and rituals concerning food and drink and ceremonial washings, which was imposed upon us, here it is, until the appointed time of heart restoration had arrived. There goes all the food laws. There goes all the ceremonial washings. Guess what? Gee, you can have bacon. Absolutely. <laughs> you can go to Red Lobster and have lobster. Yeah. What? Bacon. Bacon and Red Lobster. And pork chops. And pork chops. I mean, it's plain. I, you know, the, the problem with a deception is you don't know you're deceived. The problem with the lies, you're not sure it's a lie, right? It sounds really good. A lot of the doctrines out there sound really good. 
love, love covers everything. Love loves everybody, even if they're LGBTQ, X, Y, R, S, and Z. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter. Love covers everything. No, actually, it doesn't. Uh, that was another conversation I had. Maturity is to know that God will not bruise a crushed reed, right? Or crush a bruised reed. He won't do that. But the other side is that when he's returning, he's going to kill his enemies. You have to discern, is he showing up as the nurturing El Shaddai, many-breasted one? Or is he showing up as the lion to eliminate those who are in rebellion against him? That is where discernment comes in. You have to recognize how he wants to deal with certain situations. I can say personally, when we've done treasure hunts, he's the most nurturing when it comes to those uh, in uh, the LGBTQ, whatever, S's uh, community. But when it comes to Christians, that you walk up to them and say, have everybody in town today, we got these clues. He wants us to pray for you. I don't need prayer. Okay. Well, I always need prayer. No, I'm good. What are y'all doing? Well, you obviously don't recognize what we're doing, and we probably don't need to tell you. You know, like that's that's where the lion of the tribe of Judah, he can show up because you can't get past your own self-righteousness. If you were to look at me and Mike's new wife, awesome home, live with our uh, father-in-law, get to have good times, pick on him, um, have a dog, have a cat, you know, no credit card debt, et cetera, et cetera. God's taken us way, way over to here from where we started. But I was sitting over there in worship telling him, my need for you is even more crucial today. I don't need lack to make me feel I need him. You know what I mean? I don't need that. If someone comes up to me and says, I'm supposed to pray for you, yes, let's do it. I want your prayer. What, what is it that I need? What do you want to tell me? We should always maintain our hunger. We should never be satisfied that we have we've arrived, that life is good. One of the keys is if you can have everything going right and still be just as hungry for him and just as needy for him and pursue him just as much, that right there, guys, is your ticket. You know what I mean? If you can maintain that. But if you ever think that you don't need him on the level that you did maybe when you had had trouble, there ain't no such thing as a fair weather Christian in the kingdom. There's no such thing. You're either backslidden or you're not. Right? And so to me, if you can maintain that need for him, then that keeps you in a place of protection from lukewarmness. And so it shouldn't be that Christians that we go to pray for say they don't need prayer. In fact, I could probably preach a whole reason on why they do need it, just from their response. So these external rules, all of that stuff was until the time of heart restoration had arrived. It says very clearly that the Holy Spirit used and uses the symbols of this pattern of worship in the uh, Old Covenant to reveal that the perfect way of holiness had not yet been unveiled. How do we know this? Because of the repeated sacrifices of animals that they had to do for hundreds of years. And that continuous sacrifice failed to do one thing, make them holy. It failed to perfectly cleanse their conscience of uh, the worshiper. So Paul didn't say that the blood of animals couldn't cleanse a worshiper from sin versus covering it. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that, and he didn't say that the blood of animals couldn't make one righteous. No, it was the conscience he was after. He was saying their conscience could not be cleansed. Why was that so important? Well, let's look at 1 John chapter 3 in the Passion. And I'm thinking that 1 John's an important book for the time we're living in. Um, if we ever complete Hebrews, we might go to <laughs> 1 John. But listen to this. This is verse, verses 20 and uh, 22. Whenever our hearts make us feel guilty and remind us of our failures, we know that God is much greater and more merciful than our conscience. And He knows everything there is to know about us. My delightfully loved friends, when our hearts don't condemn us, we have a bold freedom to speak face to face with God. And whatever we ask of Him, we receive because we keep His commands. 
And by our beautiful intentions, we continue to do what brings pleasure to Him. Now, commands is reduced to two, right? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, this is so important. Whenever our hearts, what makes you feel guilty and reminds you of your failure? Your heart. Because within your heart, your inner man is your soul and your spirit. Your soul will be very quick to tell you everything that's wrong with you. It'll do it all of the time if you're not careful. It'll remind you of your fail failures. So then we have to remind our heart, excuse me heart, God is more merciful than you. And He knows everything there is to know about me. So my heart, it can't condemn me. Because I know that I have bold freedom to speak with Jesus with God face to face. Why? Because I, I have been cleansed of a guilty conscience. I don't live by guilt anymore. I don't need to be reminded of sin. The only person that needs to tell me about sin is the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. Here's the key. The guilty conscience caused separation. That's what he was after. To get rid of. He didn't want us to be separated. He didn't want to be contained in a tent to see a human one time a year. He didn't want to be reminded you're coming in with blood because you still have a fallen nature and we can't have the relationship that we need together. He didn't want that anymore. He wanted to be let outside of the box that he had to put himself in because they were going to end up causing him to have to wipe them completely out. So he made himself a house. So for us, that is the key. That's the crux. If you go into your prayer time and your heart's condemning you and it's reminding you of any failures, get, get that taken care of. And by the way, do you know your heart will try to tell you stuff that's not even a reality? It'll try to condemn you of things that's not even a problem. So sometimes, yeah, you might have been a stinker. But other times, it's just your own old way of thinking, performance-based training telling you you did something wrong. But here's the other thing that's key. If you try to go into the prayer closet and your heart's condemning you and you try to pray, guess what? You ain't getting it. Because you're not in faith. How can you be in faith and ask God boldly if your heart's condemning you? So could it be that maybe some of the prayers that we've prayed that we know are God's will, that they haven't been answered because our heart condemns us? How can you get a healing if your heart condemns you and tells you it's your fault? I mean, it bears repeating that time I had, you know, food poisoning. Miserable. Laying on the couch. Kent comes in, he's like, Mom, why aren't you healed yet? Well, you know, it's my fault. Left the stuff out too long, you know. And he's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He said, do you think God can't heal you of food poisoning because it's your fault? Oh, <laughs> never thought about it that way so it sat up faith met his hand I was instantly healed instantly so guys when you're interacting I mean to me if when Kent wanted to spend time with me if he came to me like a beat down dog I would have no pleasure or joy in that I'd be like what are you doing you know and so the relationship the relationship was the most important thing that is what can separate us from face-to-face -face interactions with God. Now look at Genesis 3, 7 through 11. He wants to take us back to pre-Adam, right? But even better, because he was outside of them, where uh, now he's in us. It says, And the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then, and, oh, this is, this is good. Then they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They probably blended in well, you know, because their clothes look like leaves too. Camouflage. But the Lord God called the man. He said, where are you? And he, and he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, did you ever notice this before? But after Adam and Eve ate from the wrong tree, they noticed they were naked, right? So we know this, because they lost the glory, so they lost their covering. But what I never saw is they weren't naked. They covered themselves with fig leaves. They, it said they sewed. I wouldn't know how they learned to sew that fast. 
Well, that's a good question. Your, guys, this is so important. Your works, your performance will never, ever, ever make you feel perfect. Never. You can sew as many outfits as fig leaves that you want to sew and cover your own nakedness by good works and performance-based relationship and you will never feel accepted. That's why it's so important. That's why if I've been a stinker and I know Holy Spirit, He lets me know that I've been a stinker and He doesn't like it, I take care of it and I'm immediately right back in. And But even then, sometimes I feel the pressure of past teachings and doctrines and religious mentalities that I picked up in church where I'll go and sit in there and it's almost like you can hear people saying, well, you've, you've not even spending time with him all this week. Actually, I have. On the way to Portalis and on the way back, before and after, repeatedly, over and over and over and over. Just thanking him for three distinct times where it looked like things would never, ever be the same. Three distinct times in my life where I could not see light past dark. You know what I mean? I didn't know if I was going to make it out. I didn't know if things were going to be put back together. Have you ever had those times where you're sitting there and you're like, I don't see. I don't see how this will ever be better ever again. And he always came in. And he not, he not only made it better, he made it beyond what I could even imagine. That's what we got to understand. It is never us fulfilling a particular task. It is always, I'm your child, you know I'm your child, and you're never going to reject me. That's what's so important. But when you get into this performance space and you try to cover your deficiencies and your lack and your limitations with your own works and your own performance and what you think pleases Him, then there's already a separation between you. There's already. They weren't naked. They felt naked. Because no matter what you do, you can never get rid of that feeling of nakedness unless you believe by faith you are perfect in His eyes. It's so important. You're perfect. So when He says, hey, I don't like that, I'm like, you're right. You don't like that. That's okay. But you love me. And I'm here to spend time with you. You know what I mean? And... The more you do that, it can be the least little thing. Ooh, he doesn't like that, right? It's all of a sudden your awareness of hurting his heart is even more in tune. Not because it works, but because you've been spending time well, with that, him. Well, that and Nana and me, when the, what they decided to make themselves, you know it was real durable, fig leaves. <laughs> and then when, <laughs> when Made in America. And when, <laughs> And blood had to be and shed. Bloodshed. But that was more durable. That didn't last for 10 minutes. And then yeah. Super glue. Yeah. 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 I just never saw that. I never saw that in spite of them creating clothing to wear, they still felt naked and they hid from him. And that, that's the worst thing you can do. If you feel naked, if you feel exposed, the, the best thing you can do is to run into his presence. So, they hid from his presence in spite of being uh, uh, clothed because their physical nakedness was only an outward manifestation of a soul now fallen and cut off from its life source. And guilt came with that state immediately. Fear and guilt and shame. We're no longer naked. No longer. The glory has now been restored for all have sinned, right? And fallen short of the righteousness of God, holiness. Does it say any of that? No. It says glory. So we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory. In order to get the glory restored, He had to then restore us to righteousness because sin is lawlessness, lawlessness is sin. So He had to restore us to righteousness. The law could not do it. Only God becoming man could, which is why there is no other gospel that will get you to heaven. There is no other religion, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, nothing. Nothing else will get you to heaven because only the good news of Jesus Christ 
is the one that says you must be born again so that you can receive that new nature so that you can then be righteous and holy. That's the only one that will do it. And that's why there are not many ways to heaven. There's only one. Because it's all about looking like Him. That's it. It's all about looking like Him. Okay, John 17.22 in the Passion Translation. For the very glory you've given to me, I have given to them. Why? So that we will be joined together as one and experience the same unity that we enjoy. What was lost in the garden? Unity. Unity. The glory was lost, therefore it severed that relationship. Father has always wanted to restore unity. He was obsessed by His agape love. He was driven to rescue us, that He is literally obsessed with us. I love that, that idea, that He is. And so, what that means is out of His obsession, He went to extreme lengths. And it also means that His requirement is that you do things on His term. Obsession doesn't mean enablement. Obsession means He did everything we need for us to become part of Him and be joined back together, yet Again, it won't be always. It'll be one way. And listen to this in the, uh, Romans 3, 23-24 in the Passion. For all have sinned and are in need of the glory of God, yet through His powerful declaration of acquittal, okay, so we've been acquitted, God freely gives away His righteousness. It's never ours. We can never get it, right? He gave us His righteousness. We've become God's righteousness. His gift of love and favor now cascades over us. All because Jesus, the anointed one, has liberated us from what? This is crazy. Guilt, punishment, and the power of sin. All of it. He took the guilt. He took the punishment. He died. When he died, that then uh, depowered uh, sin. Right? right? And then when He resurrected, it enabled us to be resurrected. So when we uh, accepted Him, we were born again, then the baptism, which is an outward symbol, right, of that reality, we were resurrected to righteousness to be free from guilt, punishment, and the power of sin. If there was one thing I could just put hands on people for, is it is the freedom from sin. You are already righteous. You don't need to serve Him out of guilt. Man, if I could just impart that reality, it would help some. In fact, we would probably have the Lord return tomorrow <laughs> if we could all figure that out. It's the man's traditions, taking that $6 bill out of the denominations. It's getting rid of all these stupid doctrines people teach that keep them disempowered, you know? Well, and I think, too, that picture that when you yoke yourself up with Jesus... Then it frees you from free. the yoke of man's yoke. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, that's a heavy yoke to pull. Yeah, yeah, it is. If you walk out of your church every Sunday and you feel worse, mm -hmm. if every interaction with your leader you walk away feeling about this big, there's a problem. I remember I told one person, I said, yeah, the pastor's wife that of a church I used to go to, I was never, not one time, called to the office to say, good job. Never. The only time they were interested in me was when I had done something wrong. And typically, I hadn't done anything wrong. I can't think of a single thing, actually. Um, I was, In fact, God made me read two books on authority just so I was not a stinker in church. But there was one thing I wasn't going to do. I wasn't going to be bowed down to religion. You weren't, you weren't going to tell me, oh, no, you can't have your ministry because it's not approved. If I'm preaching the good news, you probably should just leave me alone. You know? I didn't have any sin that they needed to call me in. Maybe you weren't in the inner circle. So it's like if every interaction with your authority figures leaves you feeling like a, a worm, then you probably need to find a place that does it. Unless you're doing stupid stuff, then you probably need to repent. <laughs> okay. All of this, guilt, punishment, the power of sin has been taken care of. It's so crucial to understand. Because many believers still live in the place of guilt, waiting for God's punishment to drop at any time, and thinking sin still has power over them. 
And these believers, or these beliefs, keep them largely separate from face-to-face -face presence. It also keeps them timid in prayer, resulting in little, if any, kingdom results. Alright, so back to our text, Hebrews 9. Paul tells us the old pattern of worship failed to perfectly cleanse the conscience. The word perfectly is, quote, to make perfect in the moral sense. Oh, interesting. It also means complete, mature, reach the goal, and finish the work. One commentator says that in the epistle to the Hebrews, it is used in the moral sense, meaning to make perfect, to fully cleanse from sin. Quote, the Mosaic law could make no perfect moral expiation, or literally it can make no one good. Remember Jesus said, why are you calling me good? There is no one good but God. He knew he was God. He was trying to alert the guy, hey, you're picking up on something. You know what I mean? You're picking up on something. You're seeing a goodness that you know you do not possess, right? So he was discerning it, but yet his blindness kept him from receiving it. The Greek word, oh, let me read uh, verse 10 again. For this old pattern of worship was a matter of external rules and rituals concerning food and drink and ceremonial washings, which was imposed upon us until the appointed time of heart restoration had arrived. The Greek word diothosis, D-I-O-T-H-O-S-I-S, is used only here in the New Testament, and it means to set things right or to snap a broken bone back into place by implication restoration. So the phrase heart restoration, that is the Greek word that means to snap a broken bone back into place and to set things right. I love that. He knew we weren't, we didn't ask to be born sinners. We didn't ask Adam and Eve to fall. That wasn't on us. However, we were born with their nature, and we did lots of things we shouldn't have. But the only thing that gets you to hell is unbelief. Murder won't get you there. Rape won't get you there. Gossip won't get you there. None of that will get you there. Alcoholism. What gets you there is unbelief. Why are you doing all those things? Because there were lies planted in your mind that has created a set of behavior, right? Heart restoration, which consists of the spirit and soul, is the inner man. The law could never touch the inner man. It only addressed external matters. Jesus Christ addressed the internal matter of the heart. By the way, you don't add following the Mosaic, Mosaic law to faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot combine the ministry of death and condemnation with the ministry of righteousness and life. You can't do it. It's, it's, it's abnormal. You know, it's, it's like cats and dogs getting along. Oil and vinegar. Oil and vinegar. What's another metaphor? <laughs> <laughs> it's just not possible. So Paul has clearly shown in the, uh, to us in Hebrews that to do so is to leave the new covenant. It adds nothing to our walk. It actually empowers sin, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 56. It promotes self-righteousness and pride, and it undermines the complete work of Jesus that doesn't need anything added to it anyway. All right, let's look at verses 11 and 12. What time? Where are we at? Okay, we're, we're almost there. Yeah, we'll probably... Well, there's just a lot of scripture, huh? What do y'all think? Now, let's see how we get. I'll give myself a little more time. Okay, so then it says... Oh, I'm in John. Well, hang on. All right, Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But now the anointed one has become the king priest of every wonderful thing that has come. For he serves in a greater, more perfect tabernacle not made by men. And he has entered once and forever into the holiest sanctuary of all, not with the blood of animal sacrifices, but the sacred blood of his own sacrifice. And he alone... He alone has made our salvation secure forever. Okay, now here's a big difference. Jesus Christ's work was heavenly. Moses and his work was earthly. Okay? So even though he had a pattern, everything was conducted on earth. Here we have Jesus Christ, who is God, was God, will always be God, came from heaven and carried out a heavenly work. So Moses can only be a type and a shadow. All right, verse 13. Under the Old Covenant, the blood of bulls, goats, and the ashes of a heifer. <laughs> That's a funny word. 
sorry. I used to be called a heifer by my stepmom. It wasn't very nice, but anyway. The ashes of a heifer were sprinkled on those who were defiled and effectively cleansed them outwardly from their ceremonial impurities, okay? Yet how much more will the sacred blood of the Messiah thoroughly cleanse our consciences? For by the power of the eternal spirit, he has offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice that now frees us from our dead works to worship and serve the living God. I love this. We have again, where is he targeting? The sacred blood has thoroughly cleansed our consciences. Again, that's where his work is. That's where he's going in. Okay, it's even better than that. Dead works refers to those things that are, quote, utterly useless work and tasks. In particular, it refers to useless rituals. The reason they're useless is because they did not carry the power to morally perfect us like Jesus could. But get this. Dead works in a passion, this is crazy, is what we did when we were corpses. Quote. Walking corpses. The zombies. The walking dead. The original zombies. <laughs> and some of us look like zombies. You know what I'm saying? Okay. The reason I like this phrase is because too many pastors from pulpits teach kingdom citizens they're, they're, that they're still fighting their old man of sin. But Paul's saying that was a corpse. And like any corpse, it's dead. In fact, uh, when he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? He was referring to the Roman practice. I don't know if some of you guys remember this, but the Roman practice where if you were a murderer, sometimes they would attach the victim's body to yours and let it rot into your body until it killed you. And that's what Paul's referring to. He's saying the body of sin is like a corpse that has been attached to me that I cannot get rid of under the law. The thing I didn't want to do, I did. And the thing I wanted to do, I couldn't. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Thank God, Jesus Christ, right? So all of that has been removed. And all of the decay and the things that we used to do when we were corpses now are useless, done away with, and we're no longer carrying that around. That's uh, Romans 7, 20, uh, 24 when he says that. So it's key to not misinterpret Romans 7 as our current state of believers because Paul already clarified that entire idea in Romans 6 that we have been freed from the sin of death. He was simply revealing what it was like to live as a man under the law. Now Romans 8, 1 through 4 in the English Standard, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember what that old ministry is? The ministry of condemnation. We're no longer under that ministry, therefore we're no longer under condemnation. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done, get this, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Okay, the law was perfect and is perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. But when the law encountered the fallen nature, it actually empowered rebellion. It empowered sin. Okay? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So in other words, the righteous requirement of the law is to love God and love others as yourself. If you do, you fulfill the law. But in Romans 6, 6 through 8, in the Passion, it says, and this is my phrase. I'm like, come on, people. We got to figure this out. I hope everybody that hears this teaching, all of a sudden, like this, a light bulb goes off. Oh, my goodness. I have lived 20-something years as a Christian thinking I was fighting my dual nature. And you should be mad. And you know what else? Maybe... Part of the power going back to the people is where the people no longer put up with doctrine from the pulpit that keeps them bound in sin consciousness and guilt. Maybe it's time for people to say, you know what, Pastor? I'd like to sit down with you and have a discussion on what you're teaching because according to my Bible, it says, could it be any clearer that our former identity is now and forever deprived 
of its power. For we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us so that we would not continue to live one more moment submitted to its power. I was ruined when I came across this right here. Well, no, because, I mean, we were part of it, but we were always weird, you know, the Wilson clan. But I did have a lot of performance-based ideas, right? But what I was ruined for was any sermon that ever said again I was a sinner. Any sermon that ever empowered sin. It, it ruined me. In fact, I pulled out a book from a great author, and I'm not going to tell you who, uh, because he's, he's fantastic. However, I pulled it out, and I read it, and I was like, you can feel it. It's, you, can, it, it you don't even, you can touch the book and feel this doctrine of fighting a dual nature. You know what I mean? Like you could feel the worminess, the word that I'm unworthy coming, you know, through the pages. And I'm like, man, this is weird. It's just like last week. I wanted to read it again. So I picked it out of my mom. Hmm. And I started reading it all. Hmm. Put it in the trash. I I cannot afford anything that empowers a performance-based mentality. You don't need help. <laughs> we're going to be making sure we're not in that probably for the rest of our lives, you know. So, then he says this in verse 7. Obviously, <laughs> I can almost hear Paul. Obviously, a dead person is incapable of sinning. And if we are co-crucified with the anointed one, we know that we also share in the fullness of life. I mean, could it be any clearer? Obviously. Then he says in verses 10 through 11, For by his sacrifice he died to sin's power once and for all, but he now lives continuously for the Father's pleasure. So let it be the same with you. Since you're now joined with him, you have to continually, see that word? Continually view yourselves as dead and unresponsive to sin's appeal while living daily for God's pleasure in union with Jesus the Anointed One. Why? Because as long as we're in unresurrected bodies, the physical body and our soul will always be uh, susceptible to respond to sin's enticement. Okay? And the reason for that is there's areas of our soul that's not yet been renewed. We were trained to sin until we got born again. So there's just things. But guys, being tempted to sin is not uh, evidence that you're a sinner. If that was the case, Jesus being tempted by sin, we'd have to label him as a sinner. It's a normal thing, right? He just used the power of the Holy Ghost to say no to sin, which is why Paul wrote in Titus, God's grace teaches us to say no to sin. Well, and who condemns yeah. us just for the mere fact that you have been tempted is Satan. Well, right. You know, he's and, a condemner. And then the heart, you mm -hmm. know. But some are like, well, you're only tempted because that's already in your heart. No. If you're in sin because you were tempted, then yes, that desire was already there. And the enemy just took advantage of it. But being tempted does not equal you're a loser. Okay? That it just doesn't. The only time you become a loser is if you sin. Then you can repent and be no longer a loser. <laughs> oh, man. All right, so verses 12 through 14. Sin, get this, is a dethroned monarch. I mean, that is fascinating to me because most churches preach it's still a king. So you must no longer give it an opportunity to rule over your life, controlling how you live and compelling you to obey its desires and cravings. So then, refuse to answer its call to surrender your body as a tool for wickedness. You know what? You need to treat it like spam callers. Yeah. Get robo-killer and put it on. Instead, passionately answer God's call to keep yielding your body to Him as one who has now experienced resurrection life. You live now for His pleasure, ready to be used for His noble purpose. Remember this. Sin will not conquer you, for God already has. Bam! There you go. Oh, that just gets me every time I read that. Sin will not conquer you, for God already has. You are not governed by law, but governed by the reign of the grace of God. Verse 16. Don't you realize that grace frees you to choose your own master? But choose carefully, 
For you surrender yourself to become a servant bound to the one you choose to obey. If you choose to love sin, it will become your master, and it will own you and reward you with death. But if you choose to love and obey God, He will lead you into perfect righteousness or mature righteousness. What does that mean? That means that your soul has been renewed to such a point that you are now mature in righteousness, living into the full stature of Jesus Christ. That's what that means. Uh, last week, uh, when you read that proverb, that's what it reminds me of, too. Yeah. You know, the wisdom. If you choose to wisdom, be wisdom, yeah. that it will cause you to be... Above the snake line. Above the snake line, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, to me, that is that Proverbs was the foreshadowing of right Of this. Mm -hmm. The enemy can only get you if you agree with him. And that's what guides you into those areas. And and it's not even necessarily just sin. If, if he can get you to accuse yourself, you separate from the presence of the Lord, if he can get you to think that you're sick and it's your fault, and it may be your fault, but that's why the blood of Jesus is here, right? Then you'll stay where you're at. So agreement. Faith is agreement. You know? And it doesn't have to be agreement with God. What did he say on the Tower of Babel? Let us go down and see what they're up to, right? So he goes down, and then they say they can do whatever they set their mind to. Why? Unity. Isn't that interesting? So you can be unified with anything and have faith, and you can make it happen. God gave us that power. And sometimes he has to intervene to make sure that what we're doing is not being done prematurely before it's time, especially concerning uh, end-time events. So it's, it's a very interesting concept. You have faith, just whichever direction you're uh, putting it towards. We've been freed from corpse activities to worship and serve God. <laughs> Alright, so verse 15, we're almost done. This stuff gets me so fired up. I just, I hate where you, you know, Christians 30, 40 years just miserable and not able to see the things they need to see. You know, the only reason that we had so much debt is we weren't living by wisdom. Well, and they're and then by wisdom, we got out. You know what I mean? They are disheartened. disheartened. Yeah. I hope never, ever, ever, ever does anyone ever come into this place and feel like they're a sinner. I hope that they always feel empowered to be who they are. Now, of course, we're not going to put up with nonsense. If you come in here being stupid, it'll be handled. But you know what I mean? I want people to know why they were put on the earth. Well, and if they don't get a hold of their identity, they spend that time just in their own strength, yeah. just trying to overcome. Well, then if they're, it's in their own strength, they're just going to keep falling backwards. Yes. You know? Yeah. So it's just like paddling. That's very important, Kathy, because I think in here somewhere it was talking about how... Um, you have to use God's grace exactly. because if you try to stop something on your own, now you're in your flesh and you're going to get frustrated. Yeah. And by flesh, I mean outside the spirit, okay, not in sin. But you're going to get frustrated. You, when you want to stop a particular pattern of behavior, whether it's sin or not, you know, not everything is necessarily sin, but you see an idea or a thought or a way of doing life that no longer serves you, right? You have to rely and trust in the power of Holy Ghost. And just follow directions. It's really that easy. Just follow directions, and he'll just like walk you right out. Because I had that. Uh, how do you stop that bad habit? And my answer was, you quit thinking about the bad habit. Concentrate on the goodness of God and who you are in God, and what He's done for you. Yeah. And then that bad stuff can just go it, it goes away. It just goes away. Yeah. But if you make that, if you just make that, and you, you make it your little idol. Even if it's a bad one, mm -hmm. you can still build it up to more than it should be. Whatever you behold, you become. Exactly. And if every day that's all you think about, well, then you are uh, putting that in the place of thinking about the goodness of God. Yep. Yep. And I think some of the one of the best books in the Bible to read to help you with those things, it, in the Passion Translation in particular, is Galatians, uh, Ephesians, and Colossians. To me those, especially Galatians. Galatians is addressing legalism that was trying to come into the church, but the other thing it unveils is fatherhood. Fatherhood and our adoption. It's really, really good for people that struggle with that. Okay, verse 15. So Jesus is the one who has enacted a new covenant with a new relationship with God, so that those who accept the invitation will receive the eternal inheritance he's promised to his heirs. 
for he died to release us from the guilt of the violations committed under the first covenant. Uh, now, that's what opened the door for us, okay, so we can go to heaven. Now, as Gentiles, we were never under the obligation of the law, ever. So people that try to do that and put Gentiles under the law, it's stupid. Okay, verse 16 through 24. All right. Now a person's last will and testament can only take effect after one has been proven to have died. Otherwise, the will cannot be forced. Cannot be enforced while the person who made it is still alive. So this is why not even the first covenant was inaugurated without the blood of animals. For Moses ratified the covenant after he gave the people all the commandments of the law. He took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and a hyssop branch and sprinkled both the people in the book of the covenant saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commands you to keep. And later Moses also sprinkled the tabernacle with blood and every utensil and item used in the service of worship. Actually, nearly everything under the law was purified with blood since forgiveness only comes through an outpouring of blood. And so it was necessary for all the earthly symbols of the heavenly realities to be purified with these blood sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves required a superior sacrifice than these. For the Messiah did not enter into the earthly tabernacle made by men, which was but an echo of the true sanctuary, but he entered into heaven itself to appear before the face of God in our place. Isn't that fascinating? That's why he told her not to touch him because he had to get up to heaven and, and present the blood. Well, and I love this about the will and testament. Oh, yes. Yeah. When you think about it, you make your will out, your will mm -hmm. and your testimony out in future. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a future thing. This is what will promise. occur. This is my will for what I want to occur after I pass away. Right. And it, but it's made in you know, anticipation of the future. Right. Yeah. And the thing is, like, you know, verse 16, speaking of that, shows us why he had to die so that the new covenant could right. take effect. It could not take effect before, but here's the other thing. The old is annulled. See, so once he died, the old covenant died with him. Right. See, and that's in Romans big time. He talks about that. So then he was resurrected and then he presented his blood to Father. So if he hadn't have died, we would not be under the new covenant. Right. Okay? And then um, verses 25 through 28 will be, will be done. Under the old system, year after year, the high priest entered the most holy sanctuary with blood that was not his own. But the Messiah did not need to repeatedly offer himself year after year, for that would mean that he'd have to suffer repeatedly ever since the fall of the world. But now he has appeared at the fulfillment of the ages to abolish sin once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. Every human being is appointed to die once and then to face God's judgment. But when we die, we'll be face to face with Christ, the one who experienced death once and for all to bear the sins of many. And now to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to bring us the fullness of salvation or the resurrection of our body. So if we may remain faithful and true to the end, then we will have our resurrected bodies never to be tempted by sin ever again. Everything will be made perfect. There will be no longer looking through a glass darkly, right? So when he returns for us, we are made like him, and then we um, whip out a can of, you know what, on his enemies and establish his earthly kingdom on earth. Now I love this. Before Christ died, everybody that died went into Abraham's bosom, right? Or paradise. And it was a cross, a big chasm from the abode of the wicked. So basically, everybody went to Hades pre-Jesus. Pre, uh, um, but now, any and all who die in Christ, they're instantly in heaven, never to be separated from Him again. We also don't have to face His judgment. It's a great white throne judgment. However, anybody that does not receive Jesus Christ now and they die. They go to Hades. Right. Where all the wicked from the time of death all the way till the very end go. Paradise that was in Hades has actually been removed. It's now in heaven. Right. That's where the paradise of God is or the garden. It's a Persian word that's used there for garden. 
So the garden with the tree of life and everything is in heaven. So there's no longer a paradise in the earth. The word judgment here is literally a court trial. Okay, so where it says, um, let's see, every human being is appointed to die once and to face God's judgment. Okay, the word judgment is a court trial. And there will be only one piece of evidence that will be uh, supported and presented to God, and that is the Lamb's Book of Life. If your name ain't in it, you will be condemned. Not for the sins you committed, and being a good person won't save you either. The only thing that will get you to heaven is belief. So unbelief is what will condemn you. No one goes to hell for murder, lying, etc. We only go to hell for not believing in Jesus Christ, even good people. Because it's not the sins themselves that keep us out. It's about the nature of a person. That's all it is. If he died to give us a new nature and people refuse his free offer of salvation, then they retain their old sinful nature and they cannot go to heaven. There is no blue light that zaps that out like Rob Bell teaches. And you can only have his nature if you're born again. Therefore, when he returns, it will bring the fullness of salvation, meaning we will receive our resurrected bodies, but for those who refuse to believe, it will bring us wrath. So the Antichrist, obviously, and the false prophet will immediately be thrown into the lake of fire. Those that did not take his mark will still be alive. Uh, they won't have resurrected bodies like us, which is why it says blessed are those who are part of the first, the first resurrection because we'll have like two types of humans on the earth. Uh, those that follow the Antichrist and false prophet, they'll be immediately killed and, and die. They'll be thrown alive, of course. But for those that didn't follow him but had not received Jesus, they'll continue reproducing children, etc. Uh, we'll have a thousand years. We'll be in our resurrected bodies, ruling and reigning over cities and states. That's why it's so important to have more than a five-year plan. What do you want your 500-year plan to be? What do you want your 1,000-year plan to be? What I tell myself is whatever I build, I want it to last for hundreds of years if necessary. Whatever it is. So. I was, it's interesting as I was talking to a lady at um, a store. And she came in. First you have to know, she had two kids. Okay. She now has seven kids. Wow. Because she has fostered and ended up adopting. She came in one day and she was just like, okay, the little brother of these twins that she had adopted, she said, he's up for adoption. And she said, I don't know if I can do it. But can I leave his brother out there? Right. She was over already, you know, like overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, what do you say? And I said, you know, yeah, that's a hard, that's a hard decision. It is. And I said, well, what are you do? God will give you strength to do it. And uh, but she came, <laughs> she came in and she said, oh, she said when she had to, she said I was that mother that had a whole little, you know, I would spend all this time hot gluing and making these little. You know, the little special things for school. And she said, oh, she had gone and taken the kids last day of school or whatever it was. And here was that mother. And she said, I just, I got chills. And, you know, she's, she said because, yeah, that's what, that was her heart to go and do all this little stuff. And, and I said, yeah, but you have to understand that God says our treasures are our children. Mm -hmm. I said, so whatever is going on right now, it's going on right now. But I said, when you look out, those seven kids are going to be your treasures. Yeah. Even if you can get them all raised and, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she said, yeah, I had just turned loose of all that stuff. Yeah. She's just trying to survive. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> if I had seven, yeah. And the little one is, um, he's, you can tell he's smart, but he's not very vocal. I don't, I don't know if he's a little, got a little bit of autistic thing. Well, one day I just, you know other kids by five and you know whatever he was little at that point and he waved his hands and said something you know, and she just turned back around and she said that was his first time to try to communicate with anybody that went around oh that's maybe cry it's like oh, yeah. let's let's uh let's oh, let's yeah. pray over yeah that's good well father we pray for that mom and her heart to take in kids that she didn't bear on her own father other people's children a heart of compassion, and that's her ministry. 
to raise those kids, to take them into her home, to give them the love and the acceptance they need, and to bring healing to their, their little hearts. And uh, Father, we ask that you give her a supernatural strength, and we also pray that you show her in a supernatural way how much you appreciate her ministry. I ask, Father, that you help her to begin to view it as a ministry. I remember when you showed me that when I was raising Kent, that that was my ministry at that time. And I, I pray, Father, that you encourage her in those days where it seems thankless and she's frustrated. Maybe she yelled because she was angry or maybe she you know, just doesn't feel like she's given them the time that she needs. Father, if anyone needs to be delivered from guilt, it's moms. And so I ask right now that you transform and, and take her into a place, transfer her into a place of motherhood that is free from guilt in comparison but instead help her to see the value that she's bringing to those kids and father this morning we thank you that the only plan you saw that could save us was by you becoming God that is the crux that is the line in the sand that is the one thing that has to be believed in order for a person to be born again. Anything else is of the Antichrist spirit. Any doctrine that opposes that God became flesh is of the Antichrist. And we thank you that you were so radical, so obsessed with us, so willing to change your nature forever and to remove from our consciousness the guilt, the punishment, and the power of sin, Father. We are so grateful for that. And we pray that you help us through your words, through actions, through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, through the anointing, bring about the message of righteousness that pierces hearts with the revelation. We ask that you help us do that, Father, because we, we have things to do. And the enemy has put us in playpens of religious doctrine that keeps us disempowered. And so I pray, Father, for a supernatural work that actually accelerates the growth of the people of God that grasp the revelation of righteousness. I pray, Father, that anybody that was raised in performance space, which would probably be about 100% of the population, anybody that is taught that you have to do this, have to do that, or God's not pleased with you, anybody that tries to approach you with a heart that's condemning, I pray, Father, that if they heard this message, they will recall that the one thing you wanted to do was for Remove that feeling of being naked in spite of being clothed. That feeling of shame and guilt and fear that would prevent us from coming to you boldly face to face. I pray, Father, that you move us away from our doing into our being. That we understand it's not man, it's not denomination, it's not tradition, none of that. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is you and you alone. So I pray, Father, that you help us create a hunger and a thirst for others to be set free from all performance and religion and instead serve you in freedom. Literally live to, to please you. And the only thing that pleases you is faith. So we ask, Father, that you help our faith come to a level like Enoch's where you couldn't stand it. You had to take them up to be with you. It's just impossible. You loved them too much. I pray, Father, that you get your people to that level where we are habitually pleasing you so much that one day you look at Jesus and you say, now it's time to get your bride. We thank you for that. We ask that you receive our tithes and our offerings given to you this morning, absent from the, uh, the requirement of the law, but given freely from a heart that loves you and that swears our allegiance to you as the only God, the only one and true God. And we ask Jesus that you receive them this morning and continue to help us bless those that are working believers and bless our city. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we can turn everything off now, Drina. Thank you. You can just shut that. <laughs>